0: we got a Bible with you this morning, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. We started a series last week through the Sermon on the Mount. We'll be working our way through that from now through Easter, taking a look at what Jesus teaches us about who He is and who we are to be in light of that. And so this morning we're in Matthew chapter 5, we'll begin reading in verse 1 and read down through verse 5. If you've got a Bible, follow along with us. If not, it'll be on the screen behind me uh, as I read it this morning Now, if you, I don't know if you've been in a Christian bookstore lately or perhaps in the religion section of a Barnes and Nobles or perhaps on Amazon.com perusing the digital bookshelves that are out there. Uh, but one of the things you will find, whether it be in a Christian bookstore, Barnes and Nobles or somewhere online, is anyone who distributes Christian material will ultimately have a section entitled Christian Living. And in that, t- that section entitled Christian Living, whether it be digital bookshelves or physical bookshelves, they'll be filled with books from all kinds of authors coming from all kinds of perspectives that are writing about the Christian life. And so there'll they'll, they'll be shelves and shelves and shelves filled with books about the Christian life. With people who come in from different philosophical, theological, and practical perspectives. Um, and and it's, the, rea- the, the crazy thing is that Jesus has his own vision for the Christian life. Everybody has their vision for the Christian life, but Jesus has his own. And I think we would do well to listen to his in fact, Jesus has a vision for your best life now, which is quite different from the book by that title that you might find in the Christian living section of one of these places. He has a vision for what the Christian life is to be. Because many, many people in our day and age, the reason there's so many books about the Christian life because many people want to exchange Jesus' vision for the Christian life for their own. In other words, this is what I think it should look like to be a Christian But I think we would do well and be wise to go back to what Jesus has to say about what it looks like to be a Christian and what the Christian life looks like. And that's what we're going to be doing over the course of these next several months together as we work our way through the Sermon on the Mount. And this morning, we begin by looking at the Beatitudes what are commonly known as the Beatitudes in Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 5. And there's a couple of things that you need to be aware of before we just begin to dive into some of these statements here. And the first is this, is that whenever we come to the Beatitudes, when we come to these statements, our natural tendency is to want to turn them into a string of commands. Right, that Jesus is saying to do certain things. But Jesus in the Beatitudes isn't telling us to go out and do something. He's telling us not what we must do, but who we must be. They're not a string of commands, but they're statements of character. In other words, we need to be these before Jesus ever tells us anything to do, He tells us who we must be. The second thing that you need to know about the Beatitudes is that oftentimes we want to take these statements and we want to make them as the, be like descriptors of some like elite varsity class of Christians. Like you got the varsity Christians, and then you got the JV Christians, and then maybe you got the freshman team, maybe even like an eighth-grade squad. Like down here somewhere, right? And so we got this elite class of Christians that Jesus must be describing here. But in reality, what Jesus is describing is the character of anyone who calls themselves a citizen of God's kingdom. Anyone who claims the name of Christ. Anyone who calls himself a Christian. In fact, if you look at the the bookends of the Beatitudes in the first one, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The last one, the eighth one, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, everyone who's a part of the kingdom of heaven, these things are progressively worked out in their character. This is who they are becoming. This is the kind of people that they are. And so it's not reserved for an elite class of Christians, but for all Christians in all places, in all times, in every generation. And so Jesus is giving us a character sketch of what it looks like to be his follower, of what the Christian life looks like internally before he begins to talk to us about external things that we must now go and do. And so as we dig into the Beatitudes this morning and over the course of the next couple of weeks together, we want to look at them through two lenses. One, the lens in the Christian life of coming to Christ, because the the Christian life begins with us coming to Jesus. But then the lens also of growing in Christ and growing in our relationship with Him. So those two lenses. And this morning as we come to the Beatitudes, we want to dig into uh, two of these Beatitudes together this morning. The first one and the third one, to see that whenever Jesus says we come to God, that we come as what he, what he would say would be humble beggars. When we come before God, we come as humble beggars. And we're going to break that statement down into two parts. And we're going to look at the last part of that statement first. When Jesus says, when we come to God as beggars. In verse 3, the very first beatitude that Jesus gives us. The very first statement. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now the word poor in the New Testament means that you lack wealth, that you lack resources materially oftentimes. So because you lack wealth, you lack position in society. And because you lack position in society, you lack any kind of influence. And because you lack influence, there is no honor associated or attached to you. You're lowly and poor and afflicted. In essence, in the New Testament, the word poor means that you're absolutely and utterly dependent upon someone other than yourself. Now when Jesus is describing poverty here, he's not talking about a material poverty. He's talking about a spiritual poverty. Those who are poor in spirit. And so in essence, what Jesus is saying is that the kingdom of God, those who take a step to come into God's kingdom, to become a citizen of his kingdom, those who come to Christ, those who come to Jesus, they come as spiritual beggars who recognize their own spiritual bankruptcy. That's what Jesus is talking about here when he says poor in spirit that we come as those who are not trusting in ourselves not leaning on our own efforts but we're trusting wholly in someone outside of us. When Jesus says blessed are the poor in spirit now to be poor in spirit doesn't mean that we engage in self-loathing or self-hating kinds of behavior. Right? We don't look ourselves in the mirror every morning and talk to ourselves about how bad we are. That's not, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. When he says blessed are the poor in spirit, he means that you're putting no confidence in what you're able to do in and of yourself for yourself. It's essentially what the Apostle Paul, the point that he comes to in Philippians chapter 3 Some of you are familiar with that text. Maybe you read it before. But in Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, if anybody thinks that he has reason to trust in his own abilities, his own efforts to have right standing before God, all of the accumulation of his spiritual credit and his spiritual capital and his spiritual wealth to bring before God, Paul says, if anybody thinks that he's got standing before God based on what he has done, Paul says, I have more. (laughs) And Paul says it this way in Philippians chapter 3 when he says... If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless, Paul says. In other words, if anybody thinks he's got spiritual capital that's impressive before God, that would be me. That would be my resume, Paul says. But then he goes on in verse 7 to say, "...but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord." For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, having a righteousness not of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now, listen, to I'm going to borrow a phrase from a British preacher of the last century, David Martin Lloyd Jones, and I quote, Let me put it as strongly as I can and do so on the basis of the teaching of the Bible, close quote. Here's what Paul is saying to us about poverty of spirit. It means that if we're truly Christians, that we don't come before God with our pedigree, with our personality, or with our popularity. That we don't come before God holding up our family of origin, or how winsome and attractive our personality might be. We don't come before God holding up the color of our skin or the location of our home. We don't come before God and leaning on our citizenship like the residency on our driver's license as if somehow being born as a Texan or an American makes us a Christian. He says we don't Uh, We don't depend on our own behavior, our moral conduct, or our good deeds. We don't boast about the education that we've received, the schools that we have attended, or the degrees that hang on our walls. We won't trust in the least, like not even in the least, in the life that we have lived in the past, the life that we are living right now in the present, or the life that we hope to live one day in the future. We don't bring before God pockets full of money that we have inherited or that we have earned by our efforts. We don't come before God trusting in our church attendance, our service projects, or the kinds of kids that we have raised. We look at all of these things and we, along with Apostle Paul, say we count them as rubbish. Which is the politically correct way of saying we count them as poop. That's literally what that word means. It means feces. It means dung. It means poop. Paul says that's the amount of value that I attach to all of these things in my past, in my present, or what I hope to do in the future. I don't lean on myself at all in the least. Because no one enters the kingdom of God with their heads held high and their hands full. They enter the kingdom of God, they become a citizen, coming in with their heads bowed low and their hands empty. Because only then is Jesus able to gently raise their head and generously fill their hands. Paul says it's not about what you can bring to God, but what He has brought to you. We don't come before God boasting in our spiritual wealth, but begging out of our spiritual bankruptcy. That is to be poor in spirit. And this means there's no Christians who pull themselves up by their bootstraps, by the way. Because because we, we don't have the boots or the straps or the strength to pull them up in the presence of God. That's what it means. Now listen, for those who look at the Sermon on the Mount and they go, well it must be, some of you may have heard this before, it must be some kind of new law that we have to keep in order to be accepted by God, right? These are all the hoops that I've got to jump through in order for God to accept me. What you have missed is that at the very outset of the sermon, Jesus undercuts all of our natural tendencies to overestimate what we are able to do and underestimate the demands. You ever been there before? This is the very first time that I went snow skiing. A little, little transparent with you this morning. The very first time I went snow skiing, I flew to Colorado. And I was going to speak for a ski retreat up there. And the church was like, "Man, we'll pay your way. You can come teach the Bible and we'll pay for you to ski. I was like, sign me up. And so, go to Colorado. And the very first day that I was there... I thought it would probably be wise, even though I was a very athletic individual in high school, I'm in my early 20s, in the prime of my life, it would probably be wise to do a little ski school. And so I go to the bunny slopes for the first half of the day that I'm there. And basically what they taught me at the bunny slopes in ski school was how to stop without like severely concussing myself or tearing ligaments or breaking bones. And so after a half a day of ski school, I thought, dude, I'm good on the mountain, and so I get on the chairlift, and I ride up the mountain, and I get up to the top of one of the green slopes, and I go down the green slope a couple of times, I was like, ha, I got this, right, and so I move up to the, to the blue slopes, which is kind of the next level and degrees of difficulty, and I get on the blue slopes, and I'm like, man, this is pretty cool, I fall a few times, no, good, no, no, no harm, no foul, get up, brush myself off, then the, the, the next day, I, I thought, what about the blue blacks, right, those are, those are a little bit more steep, have a little bit more grade to them, so I get up on the blue blacks, And then the very last day that I was there, I was riding the chairlift up and I looked down and beneath me, underneath the chairlift, are these, what is in ski nomenclature or terminology, the moguls. You guys know what those are? Like little mounds of snow that kind of dot the landscape of the hill as you go down. They're meant for very technical skiers who kind of have the ability to weave in and out and make severely sharp cuts. Now as I'm going up the chairlift, I look down and I see these small children, I mean very small children. And I, I see like these little eight-year-old girls who are doing the moguls. And I thought to myself, Self, like you're a rather athletic dude. Like You've managed the blue blacks your very first time out here. If eight-year-old girls can ski the moguls, surely you can ski the moguls. So I get off the chairlift and I turn over to the right and I go to the edge of the hill where the moguls lie and I point my skis downhill and I'm like, let's get it. And so I begin to make my way toward these mounds of snow and my, the soon... No sooner did the edge of my ski hit the first side of that mound that both of my feet came out from under me and I ended up on my back staring up at the sky and I thought, well, that's beginner's luck, right? So I get up again and I begin to make my way, try and navigate through these mounds of snow and every time the edge of my ski hit the side of one of those mounds, my feet go out and I end up on my back until finally I look down and there's a pool of red stuff beneath me. It was either like Kool-Aid or blood, one of the two, and at that point I realized, by God's grace, it wasn't my blood, but at that point I realized like I'm in way over my head here, so I took my skis off and I hiked the rest of the way down through the moguls <laughs> while these little eight-year-old girls are just kind of weaving in and out. But I had a, had a tendency to severely overestimate my abilities and underestimate the demands. And listen, all of us do that in life. And all of us do it not only in, on the ski slopes, but also in our standing before God. We have a tendency to overestimate our abilities and underestimate the demands. And the Sermon on the Mount, at the very outset, we come to the edge of it and the Sermon on the Mount says to us, there is an ocean that you must swim, the depths of which no one can fathom. And the first, and, and as you stand at the edge of that ocean, as you look out across those waves and across that water, the first thing that you must realize is that you cannot do it. You cannot do it in and of yourself. And any attempt that you make to get into the water and put one arm after the other under your own strength is only proof that you have not yet really understood what's being asked of you. And that you're still overestimating your abilities and underestimating the demands. As I've said before, and I'll say again, the only thing that you need to become a Christian to come into God's kingdom is nothing. But it's the one thing that most people do not have. And the, here's the reason, listen. The reason that most of us have, don't have the one thing that you need to get in, which is nothing, is because poverty of spirit is utterly and completely upside down in a middle class in spirit culture. Utterly upside down. You see, most of the people in our culture, they don't think of themselves as spiritual millionaires. But they also don't think of themselves as spiritually bankrupt. They kind of think of themselves as a the spiritual middle class. Kind of the spiritual middle class. And the mantra of a middle class spirit is, I'm, I'm good enough and I'm smart enough. And I mean, doggone it, people like me. I mean, at least a few. That's the mantra of a middle class in spirit mentality. See, in, in a middle class in spirit culture, we think that we're good enough and that we're smart enough. That we're taught to be self-reliant and to be self-confident. And that we're able to do anything that we put our minds to. We're taught to believe in ourselves, realize the innate potential and power that's within us. And begin to work that out and show the world just how special we are. See, the theme song of a middle class and spirit culture is from the movie Shrek. Remember the big green giant ogre? You remember the song? Hey now, you're an all-star. Get your game on. Go play, right? Hey now, you're a rock star. Get the show on. I mean, get paid, All that glitters is gold. Only shooting stars break the mold. And in a middle class and spirit culture, we're taught to believe that if you work hard enough and you work smart enough, you can be an all-star, you can be a rock star, you can be a shooting star who breaks all kinds of molds. And this message is reinforced over and over and over again. Think of two other kids' movies, right? Turbo and Planes. Some of you... May have lost you there, but t- in Turbo is the story of a small snail who injects himself with nitrous, some kind of nitrous gas. A small snail, the, the slowest creature on the planet, and he because he has this dream of winning the Indianapolis 500, and so he injects himself with nitrous gas, and here he is on the raceway competing against these Formula One cars, and he ends and has a victory lap against all of these incredibly fine-tuned machines, right? You can do anything that you put your mind to if you work smart enough and you work hard enough. Or planes. You've this rusty crop duster out in the fields who has aspirations of winning the win- wings around the globe competition. So he trains and he trains and he trains. And then he, he kind of, at the last minute, qualifies and squeaks in. And now he, here he is with all these sleek, aerodynamic racing airplanes. And he competes against them at the very end of the movie. He swoops down out of the jet stream to race to victory. You can do anything that you put your mind to if you work smart enough and hard enough. Self confident, look inside, find your potential, and unlock it to realize all that's in there and show the world just how special you are. And listen self help books. And seminars thrive in this kind of middle class and spirit culture. Tony Robbins, some of you are familiar with him. He is a millionaire 500 times over. Because he has sold this message with titles of his books like Unlimited Power and Unleash the Power Within. In fact, to tell someone in a middle class and spirit culture that they can't do something is seen as oppressive or Abusive. It might damage their self-image or self-esteem. That's why you had so many people on American Idol thinking that they could sing when everybody in the room and millions watching on television were like, man, that just is painful to listen to. Because nobody wanted to damage their self-image or their self-esteem and nobody had told them up to that point, you can't do this. You can't do this. We live in a middle class and spirit culture and one self-help author, Wayne Dyer, said, we should all be raised by parents like Mary like the mother of Jesus, because she really believed that her son Jesus was the son of God, that he was God in the flesh. In other words, he's saying, we should all be raised by parents who think and believe and tell us that we are God's gift to the world and we are so special that everyone should want to follow us, look at us, and be with us. It's a middle class in spirit culture and into this culture, Jesus says, that the ones who are part of his kingdom Into the culture with an inflated degree of self-confidence, believing in yourself and your abilities and wanting to awaken the giant that lies within. Into that culture, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Into that culture, Jesus says, those who are part of his kingdom, citizens of his kingdom, are not those who think they are all stars or rock stars or shooting stars, but those who realize that they are fallen stars. They are fallen and there is nothing about them that they can hold up before God, other than their spiritual bankruptcy. And they come before God as beggars, throwing themselves upon God's mercy. At the end of C.S. Lewis' Chronicles, of Narnia, one of the, the novels in his Chronicles of Narnia series, of Orange *Of the Dawn Treader*, you got a small little mouse named Reepicheep, and you got this great lion king named Aslan. And they come face to face and Lewis records it this way in the novel. He says, he, Repacheep, walked toward Aslan and took off his golden band from around his ears and he says, your eminence, Repacheep started with a bow. Ever since I can remember, I have dreamt of seeing your country. I have many great adventures in this world but nothing has damped that yearning. I know, listen, this is so incredible, I know I'm hardly worthy but with your permission I would lay down my sword for the joy of seeing your country with my own eyes and Aslan responds, my country was made for noble hearts such as yours, no matter how small their bearers be. I'm hardly worthy. I know I don't deserve to get in. And Aslan says, that's the only thing that you need. That's the one thing that you need. You see, grace will never be grace in your life so long as you think that you are worthy of it and that you deserve it. It will only become grace in your life when you realize there is nothing in you that deserves it. That's when Christianity really begins to flourish in your life and the Christian life really comes alive for you. Now some of you are going like, man, hold up, like time out. Like it sounds like you're saying that to become a Christian, you need to become one of those, like we said earlier, one of those self-loathing and self-hating kinds of people. Like pastor, like no offense, but I think you might need some therapy. (laughs) Now I'm I'm not gonna argue that point with you. I probably do need some therapy. (laughs) But listen, I want to show you just for a moment before we move on this morning that Christianity is not filled with self-loathing and self-hating kinds of individuals, but the individuals who, are, who recognize their own poverty of spirit and spiritual bankruptcy and they come before God as beggars are the most joyful people on the face of the earth. For two, at least two reasons. And the first one is this, because individuals who recognize their spiritual poverty, they are free from the disillusionment of perfection. See, for a middle class and spirit individual, they believe everything depends on them and their effort and their capital that they hold up before God. And so they have to continue to climb and ascend that ladder to reach that plateau of perfection. And some of you are coming into this church this morning, coming from other churches and other relationships in your life where people have continued to pile on that pressure of performing to a standard of perfection. And somewhere deep inside, you have known all along that you don't have it in you, but you've tried to... To pretend that you did but for those who recognize their poverty of spirit there's a freedom because you know you don't have it in you but also secondly those who come to a recognition of their own poverty of spirit they're not only free from the disillusionment of perfection but they're also free from the despair at the slowness of their progress I don't know about you, but when I look in the mirror at times, and whenever I, not just at at the external, I'm very discouraged by that. But when I look internally, (laughs) I begin to see things that I wish weren't there. And they've been there for a long time. Those who have a poverty of spirit, who are beggars before God, they don't despair at the slowness of their progress because they know even though they're not capable of producing the kind of internal heart level change that is necessary, they know that someone is. That God is able. How freeing is that? That is what it is to be poor in spirit. And listen, whenever you, whenever you become the kind of person who is poor in spirit, not middle class in spirit, saying, God, accept me because of my merits, but accept me because of your mercy. I'm throwing myself on it. Listen, one of the results of that is you stop being impressed with yourself. <laughs> See, some of us, the reason we're, we're not experiencing intimacy with God is because we're a little bit too impressed with ourselves when we look in the mirror. And when you stop being impressed with yourself, then you can stop living to defend that all-star image with everyone else. And that, listen, that's a part of what Jesus says in verse 5. Is meekness. When you stop being impressed with yourself and living to defend that all-star image, there's a, there's a meekness, there's a, there's a downhill flow in these Beatitudes that starts with this recognition of my own bankruptcy before God. I'm a beggar before Him. And, and we're going to look at this more next week whenever we look at blessed are those who mourn. Favored by God are those who mourn. Happy are those who mourn. Not, not, not just natural mourning, like it's not natural poverty or material poverty, but there's a mourning of our inability before God and our sinfulness before God. It's a mourning over our own sin and the brokenness of this world. And out of that flows a real recognition of who we are and a meekness and humility. So not only do we come before God as beggars, but as humble beggars humble beggars see the word meekness in the bible in verse 5 jesus says blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth and the word meekness in the bible right it literally means this it comes from a word that means a tamed wild animal which is totally counter to the perspective of meekness in our culture most of us think in our culture that meekness is weakness But actually meekness is a tamed or bridled strength. Some of you men in the room are completely turned off by the term meekness because you think it means that you must be weak. But meekness is not weakness, it is a bridled strength. Listen, there is a difference between a wild tiger and a tame tiger. But the difference is not one of strength. The difference is one of how that strength is applied and exercised. Listen, both of those animals could rip you limb from limb. But there's only one of them that you might be comfortable enough to walk up next to and pet. And that's one that has a tamed or a bridledness about their strength. That's what the word meekness in the Bible means. It means there is a massive degree of strength, but it is bridled, it is tamed strength. And so when Jesus speaks of meekness, he's not talking about weakness. He's talking about a tamed strength. And this this particular beatitude most certainly comes from Psalm 37 in Jesus' mind. In Psalm 37, we find almost the exact same statement in verse 11 where he says, But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. And the rest of that psalm kind of gives us a little character sketch of what a meek person looks like in the Bible. Listen to what he says in Psalm 37, 5-7. It says, Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil desires. There's several things that the psalmist says about the meek person in this psalm that I want to bring to your attention. And the first one is this. That the meek individual, they trust in God. They tra- in Psalm 37:5. it says, Trust in him. And he will act. There's a, the meek individual is banking on the fact that God is going to show up. That God is going to act. That he's going to defend. That he's going to rescue. That he's going to deliver. That he's going to vindicate. That he's going to be the one to silence the mouths of all your critics. He's going to be the one that's going to silence the mouths of all your enemies. And so they trust in him. And I will have to act on my own. And have these, these, these elaborate shows of force. Right? There's a bridled strength because I trust in God. But not only do they trust in God, but they also commit their ways to him. The word ways in the Bible means how you live, the way you act. And the word commit there in the text literally means this. It means to roll, right? Not to roll off the couch, but to roll, right? And so literally what he's saying is that all your life, all your frustrations, all your problems, all your relationships, all the mangled mess that sin has caused in your life, you recognize you don't have the competencies or the wisdoms to untangle all that yourself. And so what you do is you commit your way to Him. You roll the course of all of your actions onto God because He is able to bear it and support it. And you continue to put step foot after foot, step after step walking in His paths and in His ways because you trust He's going to act on your behalf. And then finally, in Psalm 37, 7, it says, Be still before the Lord. And wait patiently for him. See the meek individual who trusts in God. And is resting on God. And banking all of their life on God. And committing all their ways to him. They wait quietly before God. See the meek person isn't necessarily lazy. It's not that you just sit back and go. Okay God rain down everything I need right here. In this moment. Not that they're lazy. No. But they don't live with frenzy. They're not lazy, but they don't live with frenzy. There's a steady calm because they trust that God has all of his affairs under control and all of their affairs under control. And so they wait for him. They commit their ways to him and they trust that he is going to act on their behalf. And so there's a bridal strength, a bridled strength. But listen, this kind of meekness is absolutely upside down in a marketing culture. G.K. Chesterton in the 1960s in his book called Orthodoxy said this. He said, nowadays, the part of a man that a man does assert is exactly the part he ought not assert himself. The part he doubts is exactly the part he ought not to doubt the divine reason or God or truth, objective truth. He says, we are on the road to producing a race of men too mentally modest to believe in the multiplication table. And Lord, we are, we're about to produce a race and whole culture of people who trust so much in themselves that they would doubt one times one. They would put themselves so forward that they would doubt there's any objectivity out there. See, the, 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 the culture in which we live, and John Piper in his follow-up on this, these comments, was a pastor in Minneapolis for many years, he said, we are no longer on that road, but we have arrived. Because in the Western world, we have a culture that has arrived at an age that is filled with all kinds of self-promotion, self-assertion, and self-marketing. We live in a culture that encourages us to put ourselves out there as often and as impressively as possible. Case in point, social media. Right, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, you can present an edited, marketed version of yourself to the world that highlights all the cool places that you've been, all the cool things that you've done, all the cool things that you've bought, all the cool people that you hang out with, Right, the, the incredible meals that you have all the time as you take pictures of steaks and chicken. It wouldn't be chicken because that's not really incredible. It's just a bird that runs around the yard. Okay? But you take pictures of all these things that you're eating, the restaurants that you You can pre- present this picture of yourself and market yourself to the world. Promote yourself to the world. Assert yourself in the world. And, and, and this, this is the age in which we live. And there's several marks of an individual who is self-asserting. Let me give you a few. The first one is this. Those individuals who are self-asserting, self-promoting, and self-marketing. They tend to be pushy and demand attention. They, they, they have to be the center of the spotlight. They cannot recede back into the, to the background. They must always be in the foreground. And they're going to push and push whoever is in their way to get there. In addition, individuals who are self-asserting, they're absolutely unteachable. They're unteachable. Because they believe that they are always right. Right. And often what happens is they resort to a show of force to prove it. And so it's either a physical force, like through abuse and violence, or it could be a a verbal force through their words. And some of you are so gifted with words and the way that you articulate phrases that they just cut people because you're trying to show a show of force to show how impressive you are. Or it could be emotional force. Some of us are so passive aggressive that we just kind of back away from people as opposed to leaning into them. we're absolutely unteachable the self-asserting person is unteachable and finally listen the self-asserting person those who are self-promoting not meek but marketing themselves they are hypersensitive hypersensitive like the individual who's self-asserting and self-promoting they may confess their sin before God right they may come before God in all humility and acknowledge that He is good they are not but listen, it's something totally other and very unpalatable. We'll confess our sin before God, but to be confronted about it horizontally, that's something that, like, no, no. No. But see, the meek person, the meek person, they don't exercise shows of force. They don't respond having to show how impressive they are because they're not impressed with themselves any longer. So they don't have to defend their impressiveness before others. But a meek person, whenever somebody comes to them with confrontation of sin, they say, hey, this, this is what I'm seeing in your life. Like Our natural tendency is for like, this whole firm of defense attorneys to come off a retainer and begin to lobby objection after objection after objection. But the meek person looks across the table and goes, is that all you see? Because I see so much more. Because I'm not really that impressed with myself. only a few like only one thing that you see that's meekness that's meekness and into the into this marketing self-marketing self-promoting and self-asserting culture that is in, where everyone is pressed with themselves and marketing their image jesus says forget about yourself forget about yourself When he says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Most people that we think of inheriting the earth and coming to power are those individuals who promote themselves, not demote themselves. And Jesus says, it's absolutely counter. So, the question as we close this morning is this. How do we become these kinds of people? Because some of you right now, you're thinking, man... Like, I got to go home and I got to start fiddling, right? I got to start working on this and I got to start working on this and I got to start working on this. But listen, that would be right in line with a middle class and spirit culture. You're like, It depends on me. I've got to do this. I've got to do this. I've got to do this. But that's not what Jesus is saying to us. Here's what I want to say to you this morning as we close. It's The way that you and I become those individuals who recognize their bankruptcy and beggary before God and recognize that we have this bridled strength that we can now restrain. We don't have to constantly defend ourselves because we're trusting in God to defend us, for God to, vind- to vindicate us. We're not promoting ourselves. We're not hypersensitive about everything so that we wear our feelings on our sleeves. How do we become those kinds of people? Listen, the way that you become those kinds of people is not by looking at yourself and going, what do I need to fix? But the way that you become those kinds of individuals and we become those kinds of people is by shifting your gaze. You shift it from yourself, from looking inward to looking upward. It's exactly what happens in the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6. Listen, in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah comes before God and he has this grand vision of God. And God is seated on his throne, high and exalted, in all of his majesty and might. And when Isaiah sees him, the train of God's robe fills the temple. It just kind of billows out there and there's smoke around God as a symbol of his judgment. And there's these winged creatures flying above him who are crying out of themselves, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And whenever Isaiah sees God, his eyes are not fixed on himself, but he sees God. And what does he say? Woe is me, for I live in a land with people whose lips are unclean, but not only are all those people out there unclean, but I am as well. My lips are unclean as well. See, whenever we are constantly looking at ourselves, There's a tendency to be overly impressed with ourselves but when we fix our gaze upon God all of a sudden when we look at his standards not ours, when we look at what he has done not what we have done, when we look at what he has sacrificed not what we have sacrificed it flips the script in our life. See the only way that you and I will become the kinds of poor in spirit and meek individuals that Jesus is describing is whenever we take our eyes off ourselves and we begin to look at God. Now let me ask you this. What kind of difference would that make in your marriage? Let's get real practical this morning. What kind of difference would that make in your marriage? If you as a husband or as a wife were not hypersensitive any longer. So every time your spouse said something, it wasn't like you coming to the defense with the entire arsenal, nuclear arsenal of the United States to drop bombs on them. What kind of peace would exist within your home if you weren't impressed with yourself and you didn't have to defend yourself all the time because your gaze is no you're not you're not just looking here anymore you're looking up here you're looking at god how would that change your parenting parents and your interactions with the students in your home from grade school to middle school to high school how would that change your relationships in life groups, in the community of faith that we have here at Redeemer Church? How would it change your relationship with people that you just meet elsewhere in the community? If there was a poverty of spirit and meekness, where there was a teachableness about the way that you engage with others and you weren't pushy and demanded attention to be the kind of spotlight and center of everyone's world, It would radically change your marriage. It would radically change your parenting. It would radically change your friendships. But the only way that happens is whenever you take your eyes off yourself and you put them on Him. And one of the ways that you do that, one of the ways, very practical, one of the ways that you do that In a culture that encourages you to have your eyes on yourself every day, 24-7, one of the ways that you do that is by being with God's people on a regular basis, in a regular rhythm, every Sunday, after Sunday, after Sunday, after Sunday. So that as we sing songs and we open the scriptures, our eyes are being taken off of ourselves and placed on God. And then whenever we recognize who we are in relationship to Him, then all of a sudden these things begin to work themselves out horizontally. Another way is by feeding ourselves from His Word constantly. We sent out a reading plan earlier this year that had a, a series of videos attached to it to help you kind of get a flyover of some of the books of the Bible to encourage you to read through the Bible in 2017. And you'll encounter stories where God shows up and God acts and God delivers in spite of all the people's frail, frail fragileness and, and failures and sin. And you go, man, they weren't super Impressive. And neither am I, but God is. I'm impressed with him, not myself. I don't think that I'm special anymore. I think he's spectacular. So you show up and gather with God's people. You get into God's word and you get around God's people as they begin to interact over God's word in small in life groups. As that gets fleshed out. But listen, our gaze needs to be fixed not only on a general abstract God who's out there somewhere, but on a particular God. And one of the ways we're going to do that this morning is by coming to the Lord's table together. It's not a general abstract God, but a particular God. This Jesus who became poor, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, that you and I, through his poverty, might become rich. Jesus who had everything at his disposal. As Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 who considered not equality with God as something to be grasped but he humbled himself took on the nature of a servant and he went all the way to the cross. This is the God that we're gazing at, Jesus. So if you're a Christian in the room this morning I want to invite you to gaze at him with us as we sing together, as we celebrate together, as we come to the table. that we men here to serve the elements. If you're not a Christian this morning I want to invite you just to witness and watch as we come to the table and remember the body of our Lord that was broken, the blood of our Lord that was shed. And as you look at him and gaze at him, my prayer is that he, as John says, that John the Baptist says, he would become greater and you would become lesser. And that we would all learn what it is to be poor in spirit and meek. Let's pray together. Father, we come this morning thanking you for your grace and goodness. There is nothing that we deserve or have earned from you. Everything that we experience from your hand is grace. God, and may that grace revolutionize and change our lives. May we stop coming before you with hands full of spiritual credit and capital and wealth, and may we come before you with empty hands, ready to be filled, bowed heads, ready to be raised. That we would see exactly what is demanded of us and know that we are not capable of it but be encouraged to know that it's Jesus' performance on our behalf and not our performance. That is what Jesus has done and not what we do. And I pray God that it would make us the most strong individuals on the face of the earth with a bridled strength. Knowing that our strength lies in you. So we trust in you and we wait on you and we're quiet before you. And God, I pray that it would revolutionize. It would put marriages back together. I pray that it would put reconciled relationships that have been estranged. I pray that it would grow a body of believers here at Redeemer Church that would live for your glory and not theirs. That would live for the good of the people around them and not just their own. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.